Our scripture reading this morning is found in the book of Jeremiah and uh, can be found in your church bulletin on page 8. Before reading God's word, let us pray. Father, we are so grateful for your written word to us. Our prayer this morning is that the Holy Spirit would be with Pastor Jim as he opens your word from Jeremiah. May we, in turn, receive your message with open hearts and minds. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Hear the word of God. Announce in Judah and proclaim in Jerusalem and say, Sound the trumpet throughout the land. Cry aloud and say, Gather together. Let us flee to the fortified cities. Raise the signal to go to Zion. Flee for safety without delay. For I am bringing disaster from the north, even terrible destruction. A lion has come out of his lair. A destroyer of nations has set out. He has left his place to lay waste your land. Your towns will lie in ruins without inhabitant. So put on sackcloth, lament and wail for the fierce anger of the Lord has not turned away from us. Yet even in those days, declares the Lord, I will not destroy you completely. And when the people ask, why has the Lord our God done all of this to us? You will tell them, as you have forsaken me and served foreign gods in your own land, so now you will serve foreigners in a land not your own. Announce this to the descendants of Jacob, and proclaim it in Judah. Hear this, you foolish and senseless people who have eyes but do not see, who have ears but do not hear. Should you not fear me, declares the Lord? Should you not tremble in my presence? I made the sand a boundary for the sea, an everlasting barrier it cannot cross. The waves may roll, but they cannot prevail. They may roar, but they cannot cross it. But these people have stubborn and rebellious hearts. They have turned aside and gone away. They do not say to themselves, let us fear the Lord our God, who gives autumn and spring rains and season, who assures us of the regular weeks of harvest. Your wrongdoings have kept these away. Your sins have deprived you of good. Among my people are the wicked who lie in wait like men who snare birds and like those who set traps to catch people. Like cages full of birds, their houses are full of deceit. They have become rich and powerful and have grown fat and sleek. Their evil deeds have no limit. They do not seek justice. They do not promote the case of the fatherless. They do not defend the just cause of the poor. Should I not punish them for this, declares the Lord? Should I not avenge myself in such a nation as this? This is what the Lord says. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it. And you will find rest for your souls. But you said, we will not walk in it. The word of the Lord. weekend, I've been thinking about a story that the artist uh, Mako Fujimura tells about Dr. King's famous I Have a Dream speech. As King prepared for that speech in August 1963, 
he was exhausted uh, by a series of setbacks, imprisonments, and disappointments. He was so physically worn down that he spent many hours just resting while his followers worked on the speech that he was to give at this historic gathering. One of his close aides, Clarence Benjamin Jones, said that the logistical preparations for the march were so burdensome that the speech was not a priority for us. And on the evening of Tuesday, August 27th, 12 hours before the march began, Martin still didn't know what he was going to say. And after walking a few miles to the Lincoln Memorial, he stood to read his prepared text, but he knew that something wasn't right. Now, standing uh, behind King throughout the speech uh, was Mahalia Jackson, uh, the great gospel singer who sang right before he spoke. And as he read his text, she kept on yelling, tell him about the dream, Martin, tell him about the dream. And so at the end of the prepared speech, Dr. King put down his text and he began to speak impromptu. And the energy of the crowd listening empowered him. And the result was the, the I have a dream uh, speech that we know today. Mako Fujimura loves how the artist here uh, behind the preacher encouraged King uh, into his vision and, and pressed him on. This is a good story uh, for us to have in mind as we come to the book of Jeremiah today. Uh, the prophets of ancient Israel were a mix of preacher and poet, artist and priest. Now, Jeremiah himself was from a family of priests, so he was part of the elite of his day. He had access to the powerful. We're going to hear him preaching at the temple next week. But his message was not popular. He spoke hard words to people who did not want to hear them, and he suffered for it. He was beaten, he was put in the stocks, he was imprisoned. For most of his life, he was mocked and, and he was laughed at. And this is important to keep in mind as we think about these words of judgment that we hear in our text today. No one thought that what Jeremiah was saying was going to happen. Either that there was going to be an invasion or that God would judge his own people like this. And this is why Jeremiah spoke in such a startling way. He had to try and break through to them. God was trying to get their attention. And there are three things that we see in these texts today. First, God's warning. Second, God's diagnosis of the problem. And third, God's invitation. Now, there is a strong word of judgment uh, here but also, I hope you'll see, also a strong word of hope. So let's look at each one of these. God's warning, God's diagnosis, and God's invitation. First, God's warning. When Linda and I first uh, moved to Wisconsin for graduate school in 2002, uh, we had never lived anywhere that had the possibility of tornadoes. And so the first time we heard the tornado sirens going off, it was a really strange experience. You know, what is that noise, and what are we supposed to do but we got used to it pretty quick. The first couple times, there was, actual, there was an actual tornado warning. We'd go down to the basement, you know, really concerned for our lives. Uh, but it didn't take long for us to realize that folks in Wisconsin didn't really take tornadoes that seriously. And we began to just go on, you know, with life as normal when the sirens would go off. Until one evening, uh, during a storm, the siren, the siren went off. We were watching TV, 
and the local news was uh, on the TV giving updates about the weather. And suddenly, as we were watching the newscast, the camera started shaking, and the newscasters dove under their desk. And then suddenly, the screen just went black. And it turns out that a tornado touched down right on top of the news studio near Midvale and at the Beltline. And after that, we started paying more attention to the tornado warnings again. This is my message today. Pay attention to the tornado warnings. A warning of disaster is a great thing. This is what we hear in chapter 4, in verses 5 to 8. God is giving the people a warning. He tells them to sound the trumpet throughout the land because there is an invasion coming and they're given this opportunity to get ready to flee for safety. God warns them. But what is he warning them about exactly? There's this portrayal of an invading army, of course, but this is only part of it. Because the Lord says in in verse 6, I am bringing disaster from the north, even terrible destruction. And this is what the prophet understands is happening in verse 8. So put on sackcloth, lament, and wail, for the fierce anger of the Lord has not turned away from us. It's not just any invasion. This is God's judgment. The the culmination of the conflict that we've seen building in this book over the past several weeks between the people's rebellion and, and God's grief over their wrongdoing. This God who, who judges in, in such a dramatic way, really using such brutal means, is, is hard to comprehend. Right? Can we really believe in a God like this? Well, as we think about that question, I want you to notice something here. Notice that the same one who brings the judgment also brings the warning. It's kind of strange, isn't it? The same one who brings the judgment also brings the warning. Invading armies in the ancient Near East did not usually go around warning people that they were on their way. Now, if there was only a judgment without a warning then I think you might have good reason to say that the God of, Bi- of the Bible is, is cruel, is, is vindictive in some way. But that's not what we see here, is it? The, the Lord brings judgment, yes, but, but he also cares enough to, to give warning. How do we understand this? I think the answer is this. It's not that, that God is schizophrenic or, or unstable. Rather, his judgment is an expression of his loving character. He doesn't want any to perish, and he cares about this world so much that he must stand against evil, even or especially when it's discovered among his own people. Can you believe in a God who brings judgment? Well, the question, I guess, is whether you think there's anything in this world that needs judgment. 
I'm sure you remember the trial that was dominating the news about a year ago, uh, the trial of Larry Nassar, uh, the gymnastics doctor at the University of Michigan. Uh, before he was sentenced, more than 200 women gave testimonies about his abuse in two courtrooms over nine days. Uh, they called for judgment upon him, and, and rightly so. Uh, the last woman to testify at Nasser's trial was Rachel Den Hollander. She was the first woman to, to publicly accuse him of, of using his, his access and his, uh, his authority uh, in the gymnastics world to abuse hundreds of girls sexually. And, and Time Magazine named her one of the most 100 most influential women or influential people of, of 2018. She's also a Christian, and, and here's part of what she said at the trial. Throughout this process, I have clung to a quote by C.S. Lewis, where he says, My argument against God was that the universe seems so cruel and unjust. But how did I get this idea of just, unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he first has some idea of straight. What was I comparing the universe to when I called it unjust? Larry, I can call what you did evil and wicked because it was. And I know it was evil and wicked because the straight line exists. The straight line is not measured based on your perception or anyone else's perception. And this means I can speak the truth about my abuse without minimization or mitigation. And I can call it evil because I know what goodness is. And this is why I pity you, because when a person loses the ability to define good and evil, when they cannot define evil, they can no longer define and enjoy what is truly good. The God of Jeremiah brings a straight line. It's because he's so good that he judges evil. But the same one who brings the judgment also brings warning. It's the first thing that we see today. Second, he, he also doesn't judge without explaining what is wrong. In chapter 5, in verses 18 and 29, he describes two basic problems that lead the people into uh, their idolatry. First, he says that they have uh, a disoriented heart. And second, that their, their disoriented hearts result in economic and social injustice of, of various kinds. Let's, let's look at each one of these. First, they're they're disoriented hearts. Three times in this passage, the word heart is used. You can only see it in English once. In verse 21, the people are called foolish and senseless. To be senseless in Hebrew is uh, to be enlave, without heart. In verse 23, he says that the people have stubborn and rebellious hearts. And then in verse 24, uh, they do not say to themselves, is literally in Hebrew, they do not say in their hearts, let us fear the Lord our God. The, the people have a heart problem. Their heart is not oriented toward their God, but to idols, to, to created things rather than to their creator. In his book, You Are What You Love, Jamie Smith describes the problems that arise when we're not oriented towards the right things. He tells the story of a tragic steamship accident in 1914, not long after the sinking of the Titanic. In January 1914, in the thick fog off the coast of Virginia, the steamship Monroe 
was rammed by the merchant vessel Nantucket, and it sank. 41 sailors lost their lives in the waters off the coast. And during the trial, the captain of the steamship Monroe was cross-examined, and the New York Times reported that Captain Johnson navigated the Monroe with a steering compass that deviated as much as two degrees from the standard magnetic compass. He said this instrument was sufficiently true to run the ship, and that it was the custom of masters in the coastwise trade to use such compasses. His steering compass had never been adjusted in the one year he was the master of the Monroe. And Smith writes, the faulty compass that seemed adequate for navigation eventually proved otherwise. Two degrees doesn't seem like a lot. But the ship was slowly moving off course. It's the same with people. A person with a a disoriented heart may look great on the outside, but they're slowly and inevitably moving in the wrong direction, towards the wrong things. These verses are an, an invitation to examine our hearts. Are we giving attention to our spiritual lives, to our Creator? Do we know our limits? The ocean knows when to stop. Do we? Do we take the good things uh, that we have for granted? When we don't do these things, we don't just hurt ourselves, we also hurt others. And verses 26 to 28 describe the injustice that results. Among my people are the wicked who lie in wait like men who snare birds and like those who set traps to catch people. Like cages full of birds, their houses are full of deceit. They've become rich and powerful and have grown fat and sleek. Their evil deeds have no limit. They do not seek justice. They do not promote the case of the fatherless. They do not defend the just cause of the poor. A traditional prayer of confession from the Book of Common Prayer says, Most merciful God, we confess that we have, that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. In these verses, notice we see a similar concern for both things done and things left undone. He calls out the wicked who oppress others to gain wealth and and power through deceit. And he also declares that their problem is not just what they do, but also what they don't do. They do not seek justice. They do not look after the welfare of the orphans. They do not defend the just cause of the poor. At our council meeting uh, on this coming Tuesday, uh, we're starting to study the special role of elders and deacons in the church. As as Ken prayed uh, this morning, this is the time of the year when we begin to receive nominations for these offices. And so we want to be prepared to equip those Uh, those of you whom God might be calling into leadership. And what we've been looking at here in in Jeremiah 5 is a great explanation for why we have both elders and deacons in the church. The the elders serve by by shepherding our hearts. Uh, They've been given responsibility for the spiritual nurture and, and care of the church through overseeing our worship, but also through pastoral care and and discipleship. 
inviting us to examine our hearts and to, to, to see to, to what we are oriented in our lives. The deacons serve by reminding us that our hearts can never be right with God if we do not have compassion for the poor, if we're not actively pursuing justice for those in need. In these coming months, we're, we're praying for leaders who will continue to make us faithful in these kinds of ways. I, I hope you'll be joining us in, the, in that prayer. So we've, we've heard God's warning this morning. We've seen his reasons for judgment. However, this isn't the end of the story because even here, in these chapters of judgment, God brings a word of grace. In 6.16, the Lord says, Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it. And you will find rest for your souls. But you said, we will not walk in it. This verse shows us both God's greatest act of judgment and his greatest act of mercy. Let me explain. The greatest judgment that God could bring on these people would be to accept what they say and let them do what they want and to go their own way. This is our our deepest problem, isn't it? It's not just that we do bad things. It's that we don't want the right things. And when God accepts our answer, uh, we will not walk in it. Uh, that, That would be the greatest act of judgment that we could receive. In her testimony at the Larry Nasser trial, uh, Rachel Den Hollander described the ways in which Nasser had become twisted by his selfish desires. She said, You have become a man ruled by selfish and perverted desires, a man defined by his daily choices repeatedly to feed that selfishness and perversion. She spoke the hard truth. But then she did something remarkable. She brought a word of hope to this man who had hurt her and so many others in such horrible ways. She said this, In our early hearings, you brought your Bible into the courtroom and you have spoken of praying for forgiveness. And so it is on that basis that I appeal to you. If you've read the Bible you carry, you know the definition of sacrificial love portrayed is of God himself loving so sacrificially that he gave up everything to pay a penalty for the sin he did not commit. By his grace, I too choose to love this way. You spoke of praying for forgiveness. But Larry, if you have read the Bible you carry, you know forgiveness does not come from doing good things, as if good deeds can erase what you have done. It comes from repentance, which requires facing and acknowledging the truth about what you have done in all its utter depravity and horror, without mitigation, without excuse, without acting as if good deeds can erase what you have seen in this courtroom today. The Bible you carry says it is better for a stone to be thrown around your neck and for you to be thrown into a lake than for you to make even one child stumble, and you have damaged hundreds. The Bible you speak about carries a final judgment where all of God's wrath and eternal terror is poured out on men like you. 
Should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, the guilt will be crushing. And that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet. Because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found. And it will be there for you. I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend that to you as well. The same God who brings judgment also brings warning. More than that, in, in this gospel that Rachel describes so clearly, he brings more than warning. He brings forgiveness and hope for anyone. No matter what they've done or what they've left undone, we're all people who have said to God, we will not walk in your ways, each in our own way, in a small way or in a big way. The good news is that there is grace for people like us. Jesus died not only for our outward and our obvious sins. He died for our secret sins, for our thoughts, for our words, for our deeds. He died for the pride that claims not to need him. And he died for our deepest resistance to his ways. For all our hesitation to love him and to love others generously and and, and sacrificially. In the gospel, we see that judgment does not have the final word. He doesn't let us go our own way. He comes in the flesh to reveal his love and his grace. And he invites us to trust him with our whole lives. Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Do you believe this? Let's believe it together. Let's pray. Our Father, we uh, come to this uh, hard word of judgment today and we confess uh, uh, that we hesitate uh, to listen to words like these. Uh, we hesitate to, to think about what it means to, to face a God like this. Uh, we would rather uh, remain on the surface and, and uh, keep things simple and, and easy uh, we, we thank you, Father, that you are not a God who leaves us in that kind of place, but instead you come to us uh, in your word to reveal who you truly are in all your holiness, but also in all your grace. And so we pray that you would break down the resistance of our own hearts uh, and that we would see you for who you truly are and see ourselves uh, for who we are, uh, that we might, uh, we might turn away uh, from anything that draws us away from you. Instead, receive your love and your forgiveness that you have revealed in the person and work of Jesus. Uh, We thank you for him. Uh, We pray that he would be exalted, that we would know more of his love and his grace in our lives, and that we would be empowered by his spirit to be a people of love and grace to others, uh, those close to us and those uh, who we interact with every day. Uh, We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.